0: Diving into everything there is to know about renewable hydrogen, this is Purple is the New Green, a Nell Hydrogen podcast, co-hosted together with H2View. Join us as we talk about hydrogen, the energy carrier of the future, already available today. Welcome to another episode of Purple is the New Green. I'm Lila Astell-Danielson, and with me today, of course, is my co-host, Rob Cockerell. Hiya. Today, we're going to be chatting with Nell's Senior Vice President of Corporate Business Development, David Bow, and he's going to talk to us about colours, the various colours of hydrogen.
1: So, purple?
0: (laughs) No, believe it or not, some of us in Nell can speak about more than just purple.
1: Well, I'll believe that when I see it, or hear it, I suppose.
0: Fair enough. No, today David is going to talk to us about brown versus blue versus green hydrogen. Now, I get the feeling this is a topic HTVU has quite a bit to say on. So go on, Rob. Impress me with your knowledge.
1: <laughs> no pressure or anything.
0: <laughs> nope, not at all. Just bear in mind, we'll be speaking with an expert today.
1: Uh, right, okay. No pressure at all. And Now I've probably gone a bit red, so we really are covering all the colours
0: here. <laughs> yeah, we, or rather you, really are.
1: Thanks. So it's probably best if I leave the matter of colour coding to the expert today, but what I will say here is that this is a topic of real interest across the levels in hydrogen, from those just getting into hydrogen and trying to understand what brown versus green is, to the investors asking about the role of blue hydrogen as this bridge to all-out green in the future. We see this a lot at H2View. We're all agreed that green is the ultimate goal, but there's a lot of discussion and a lot of intense debate around the different shades along the way. It's one of those perennial hot topics in hydrogen. So it'll be good to bring some clarity to these colours for our listeners, and to anyone out there who's ever wondered what they mean.
0: That's a good point, actually. Some of our listeners may be wondering about the significance of the name, Purple is the New Green. And while it obviously plays on Nell's branding colours, I'm sure it'll all make more sense after today.
1: I'm sure it will too. And hopefully we'll be able to put some myths to bed for those hydrogen naysayers as well. A lot of critics jump on the fact that so much of hydrogen today is essentially brown, so it'll be good to get some colour on blue and green hydrogen from David.
0: I see what you did there. And that sounds like my cue to get David on the line. David, thanks for joining us.
2: Well, thank you thank you both for having me on uh, today. I certainly look, in, look forward to offering some kind of overall market and even maybe some cor- you know, business and uh, kind of now corporate and, and personal opinions on the color of hydrogen. I, I love the play on words between the two of you. And I don't know that I'll be able to hang with that, but, uh, I certainly look forward to having, uh, some very straightforward questions as it comes to, uh, green versus Brown versus, uh, even blue hydrogen.
0: Excellent. Well, you speak fairly frequently on behalf of Nell, so I'm betting a number of our listeners know at least a bit about you. But let's start there anyway. Could you tell us a bit about your background?
2: Yeah, so spent some part of my career on the brown side, and you'll learn more about what that means here in in, in a few minutes. But you know, so I, I came from before coming to Proton, which is our PEM electrolyzer division, based in Wallingford, Connecticut. Now I'm uh, serving a corporate role in business development for, for Nell Hydrogen. But prior to that, I was on the more general energy sector, both kind of a combination of oil and gas as well as electricity. And a lot of that during that time frame was either natural gas or even coal. So I think it was certainly a, a wonderful transition to have the opportunity to focus on something so important as helping our planet Earth.
0: And what got you into the hydrogen industry in the first place? Starting perhaps with uh, working with brown hydrogen, but then eventually into green hydrogen in general, what got you into it?
2: So early in my career, I had the opportunity through several different pathways as I made my way to hydrogen to be involved in, uh, I'll just call it just very fast-paced markets and businesses. Uh, One of the early ones was even biotech. So, here's a biotech guy now, and now going to energy, going to hydrogen. So, quite an interesting transition. But one of the things that I enjoyed was that fast pace and that high energy, and just looking that things were on the cusp. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, you know, in, in 2014 is when I stepped into the hydrogen world. And even then, you could see the beginning of what is coming quite so exciting in in, uh, the days today.
1: So David, Lila's done a very good job of intimidating me with my potentially little knowledge on the topic (laughs) uh, in comparison to yours. So let's get into the the kind of the topic of the show today. I'm just gonna go ahead and ask, we hear about many different colors of hydrogen. Can you explain all?
2: Absolutely, so the colors of hydrogen are relatively new and pretty much, I mean, there there were always, at least when I say always for me, always begins in 2014, discussions relative to green and brown. So let's first talk about green, my favorite hydrogen color, other than purple, which is the, the ultraviolet uh, color of, of hydrogen under a under UV light.
0: I'm really glad uh, you got that UV. in there, David. Thank you. <laughs>
1: and me, that's my new favorite You're color very too. You're
2: welcome. <laughs> yes and it works quite well in our graphics and everything lila so hats off to you for all of that hard work as well well thank you so you know green is 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 basically producing hydrogen in a completely carbon-free manner so we're we're taking just water and green or renewable electricity to split the water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen so we're not using a thermal power plant which is operated by some fossil fuel to provide the electricity it's coming from a wide range of, of different renewable sources which we'll talk a little bit more about that later brown hydrogen is is uh, i think um, an easy jump to to understand in that it's hydrogen being produced not only typically from more of a non-renewable power source because the the typical process, most of the hydrogen made in around the world today is made by a process called steam methane reforming. And uh, so you heard steam and you heard methane. So steam, high energy to generate the steam, methane coming from natural gas and generating on average about 10 to 12 tons of CO2 per ton of hydrogen produced. So on top of that, quite often, in many cases, it may also be delivered via truck and diesel engines and things of that nature. So you can really start piling up and looking at, you know, the inverse being having at your site where you need the hydrogen, having an electrolyzer with a renewable energy source, truly giving you 100% green hydrogen versus at, a minimum 10 to 12 tons of co2 per ton of hydrogen now blue is a newer thing that's coming into play over the last several years and it's really looking at still that steam methane reforming process but literally capturing the carbon so one would say well if you capture the carbon why can't we still call that green well there's still the high energy requirements that today does not lend itself to be connected to a renewable energy source when in most cases a renewable energy source is going to be intermittent power. An electrolyzer can operate under intermittent power, but a steam methane reformer cannot. So you will have to you will see that, you know, although you're gonna reduce, I'd say approximately. I think the data shows about half of the CO2 total content. So it is a nice shift in the right direction to decarbonize hydrogen. And and you may see that used a lot more in in very industrial settings, where you might see like a refinery as an example, or, or other chemical types of operations. But even those we see big shifts and strong interest towards going straight to green. So blue, again, carbon capturing, off the process of steam methane reforming. Brown, doing nothing and letting the CO2 be emitted from the process. And green, again, electrolyzer, renewable energy source, water, you get pure hydrogen and oxygen.
1: So just to clarify for those new to hydrogen, David, uh, brown hydrogen is what's readily available today for refineries, for example. Blue hydrogen is a kind of intermediate hydrogen that's not quite where we want it to be, but it's achievable today at scale. And green hydrogen is this dream shade we're aiming for, which is truly renewable and not yet ready at scale. Is that broadly right and isn't that quite a leap from brown to green?
2: So it is a leap from brown to green. But I challenge the position a little bit with respect to not quite ready at scale. So Nell is already invested and moving forward with roughly a half gigawatt capacity factory. Other electrolyzer manufacturers have also indicated their intent to increase scale of manufacturing. So the technology is there and, and ready at scale. Nell both in its PEM and its alkaline product line has very large stacks that can be placed in series to make very, very large capacity production sites. So I I would say that if anything, um, I mean, even turning back the clock 100 years ago, hydrogen production via electrolysis was done at a much larger scale today. Uh, That was before there was steam methane reforming. In fact, the kind of foundation of Nell was for very large scale hydrogen production, to produce ammonia at hundreds of megawatts. So you don't see installations like that today, but certainly I believe if we could do it, do it 100 years ago, we can uh, do it today.
0: Now, some people would argue that we should skip right over blue hydrogen and focus only on green hydrogen. What are your thoughts on that?
2: So I, I think that there will need to be, you know, some, at least a transition you know, because you already have the infrastructure and the large-scale production taking place in, in the steam methane reforming, which if you, again, capture that carbon, you're going to produce blue hydrogen. So if we look at, you know, the intention or let's say more the forecast of hydrogen representing up to 30% of the global energy requirements, I, I certainly believe that they will be some extended need to go through at least a transition from from blue to green.
1: So I've got a question on green hydrogen. When we're thinking about that, we're talking renewable hydrogen. So broadly speaking, there's solar power involved, there might be wind power involved. And of course, there's the water in the electrolysis process. Now, the sun and the wind are abundant, uh, very renewable, as we all know. Uh, But what about the water? Will there be any problems with the water supply?
2: I love that question. A lot of people do jump to, you know, especially those that are are, are very intent on helping the planet, making sure that sustainable approaches are truly sustainable. I think it's very important to realize that the beauty of hydrogen is although you use water to make it, when you convert that hydrogen back to an energy source, So whether it's thermal, whether it's electricity, whatever the case may be, when you convert it back, it gives you the water back. So it's a net zero impact on the water requirements. So that's just a wonderful added component of of green hydrogen in in that it it truly is from every aspect, 100% green and 100% offering our planet strong sustainability.
1: Absolutely. I think that's a great message and, and one that perhaps sometimes gets lost on the water side.
2: It does. And, and also don't forget, as you're producing this hydrogen, you're giving off large amounts of oxygen. And I think we all wouldn't mind to have a, a slightly higher oxygen content in our in our atmosphere today. So again, as we look at green hydrogen to bring down our, our total you know, carbon emissions, We can also see the benefit of it delivering also additional oxygen to the atmosphere.
0: Now, David, you mentioned net zero in there, which is a a catchphrase, if you will, that I think some people have have heard quite a few times. And another one is fossil parity. We've heard a couple of others featured in this series mention fossil parity. Can you explain what's meant by that and where we are in regards to achieving it?
2: Absolutely. It's a very good question, Lila. Thank you. So from my perspective... When i look at net zero i'm looking at something that is a consumer of something but if it returns it in an equal amount then it is net zero so electrolysis is net zero once that hydrogen is utilized when it comes to water as i mentioned but the fossil parity is is an important one and this goes into an earlier question as to are we ready is the technology there? Is everything there to really move forward at large scale green hydrogen? And one of the things that plays in there is although everybody has the right intentions with respect to you know working to to make their company, their you know local city, state, province, you know something that is, is uh, more sustainable. You know there's still the financial aspect. So that's where fossil parity comes in. So fossil parity is used, and I would say coined very much so quite often in some few years back, a lot by Nell. Really, it was from, from the Nell organization, even before I became part of it, that I started to hear this term fossil parity, and it makes perfect sense. So as we mentioned, natural gas is is used in steam methane reforming. There are, there are other fossil routes, um, including coal. If you look at uh, the country of China, more than 95% of its hydrogen is generated from coal, which has a much higher emission rate than, than even the natural gas, uh, which I think we, we all can understand. But really what it boils down to is, can you produce green hydrogen at the same cost as you produce it from a fossil fuel? Now, again, globally, most of that is natural gas, hence the steam methane reforming, reforming methane coming from the natural gas. And we already can see in many parts of the world for a variety of reasons, which I'll briefly touch on, that we are already seeing fossil parity or better. So in other words, companies that are using hydrogen today, brown hydrogen made from natural gas in most cases, Can look to green hydrogen as an alternative without increasing cost. And the primary factors that roll into that are the CapEx, so the cost of the electrolyzer, which has dropped by factors, you know, driven by innovations on Nell from both technology sides, from our proton exchange membrane, our PEM technology and our alkaline technology, as well as the the scale that's needed. So all of this through supply chain, through innovation, the the capex has dropped dramatically. And then the bigger factor even that sometimes can represent 70% or even more of the cost of the hydrogen is the operating cost or the opex. And in this case for green hydrogen, it's electricity and it's renewable electricity. And with the wide proliferation of renewable energy into the global market today it is it's bringing down electricity pricing dramatically and that combined with the efforts and the results in delivering a much lower capex electrolyzer as well or cost intensive electrolyzer is allowing us to deliver on fossil parity or even better I know that can be a little confusing. I hope it answered the question.
0: No, thank you, David. That was a really good, thorough response. And I didn't want to interrupt you in there because you were in such a good role. But uh, I can confirm that fossil parity is indeed a term that was coined by Nell. Um, We heard in the uh, podcast with Bjorn that it's something that we're actually quite proud of of putting out there to the world.
2: And and it was Bjorn that I first started hearing it from. So that makes sense.
0: (laughs) That doesn't surprise me.
1: I mean, I was just thinking, guys, we need to coin or take over some more phrases here because all roads clearly lead to now. I mean, throughout history. Uh, So in your opinion, David, is it this net zero angle or or status perhaps that makes hydrogen such a key part of the energy transition?
2: Yes, absolutely. And, And I think that, you know, as we move forward with more and more, intermittent energy sources. So from renewable, from, from solar, from wind. So those aren't, the wind isn't always blowing, the sun isn't always shining. So there's already a need for some level of, some form of energy storage. And if you wanna look at a clean approach to energy storage, hydrogen is the most diverse and offers the, the, the cleanest approach to energy storage. I mean, we could, we could all think of a battery or large-scale battery implementation, but there you're kind of shifting the environmental impact. So if you think about what's in a battery, and they they don't last forever, you know, if you tried to do 30% of the world's um, energy supply and try to do storage via batteries, we'd have a very different environmental issue to to deal with.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I'm going to bring us back a little bit. Um, You mentioned that you moved into the hydrogen industry in 2014. Has much changed in the industry in the last six years? And and where do you see it going in the future?
2: A lot has changed. It has changed in the direction that some of us that, you know, have been in the hydrogen industry for for quite some time. There's many that have been in it many, many more years than, than I have, but we've we've seen a couple historical spikes where it looked like this this energy or this hydrogen economy, or what I'll call kind of the the next industrial revolution comes into play. And it's just been a matter of not if, but when. And what's changed in the last six years, we're starting to understand the when, not the if. And I mean, seeing sales pipelines increase by 100 X or more talking now instead of looking at big scale of megawatts to even gigawatt scale electrolysis facilities it's just you know the phrase i like to use is literally hydrogen moves at a pace that is sort of in dog years not in our normal years so if you think you understood hydrogen six months ago it looks a little bit different today because it is changing and evolving and moving so fast.
0: I love that phrase, and it actually leads me right into what I was just going to ask you about next, which is, you know, you mentioned that you have always loved being in a fast-paced environment and that hydrogen, you could see it, you could see the industry shaping up to be really, really fast-paced. What would you say that it's like now? Is it still keeping up that uh, pace that you like?
2: Oh, (laughs) I would say that we're seeing just within this calendar year so far, even amongst the challenges with COVID. In fact, let me touch on that just briefly. We're seeing a number of countries around the world that are looking to green hydrogen as their stimulus as part of their stimulus plan, you know, as we look to come out of this pandemic. And it's it's quite amazing in that looking to stimulate their economy, but at the same time decarbonize. So I mean, what a wonderful approach, and it really is is driving the the interest, the need, the demand. And I tell you, if you if you are not in, if you're listening and you're not in hydrogen today, you need to come to it with a lot of energy, because there is a lot going on, and and it is it's quite exciting.
1: Absolutely, I think we'd all agree with that. And I'm loving the dog's ears reference as well. I mean, clearly a lot has changed, uh, as you said, but. Do you think we still face the traditional chicken and egg scenario with hydrogen fueling and infrastructure, and, and if so, what do we need to break that?
2: I think what we're seeing that addresses the chicken and egg scenario is we're, see, we're seeing over the past couple of years a big shift from passenger vehicles to more trucks, buses, fleet types of vehicles. So those typically are, you know, running very common pathways throughout a country or countries within Europe, uh, delivering goods. And it's much easier, you know, U.S. as well. It's much easier to look at that very common pathway in these large distribution centers to look at where you would place fueling stations and how you capture more vehicles with one fueling station. So heavy duty trucks are on a big move. You know, we're working very closely and excitingly with with Nikola. We're also working with Hyundai on projects for Switzerland and and looking to move that also potentially into Norway. So, you know, the the chicken and egg has been kind of taking a step back and saying the passenger vehicle is probably the harder one to address. But this truck bus fleet is much easier in that we it's clear, we understand where the fueling is needed and you can, you know, eliminate more or less that whole chicken and egg, but at the same time while you're addressing that, you're also helping to build out the infrastructure to support the passenger vehicles. So to allow that to, to quickly follow, you know, this deployment of Again, more trucks, buses, and and fleet-type vehicles.
0: You mentioned that uh, a lot of countries have been looking to hydrogen to stimulate their economy and decarbonize. And then it makes me think, when we're talking about the rollout of fleet vehicles for hydrogen and, and the like, where are we seeing the biggest advances? Where should we look to?
2: Yeah, certainly from a geographic perspective, here in the U.S., for quite some time, the state of California has been a major leader in this area. There are more passenger car fueling stations in California than are total globally. So California has been very progressive in this area, but they have also following the pathway that I just mentioned that we see a lot of others doing. They've also started to really focus on fleet vehicles. So if you're a city um, or what's commonly referred to as a municipality within California, you have a deadline. You know, over the next five years, I think the deadline is 2025, where you actually have to convert your, you know, municipality vehicles. So in this case, let's use, use buses as an example to zero emission. And we do know that there's the opportunity for we've seen some battery buses out there, but it's, it's quite interesting when you look at uh, you may a battery bus may be cheaper than a fuel cell bus today, but what we see is the cost of the infrastructure is much more. So the more buses you need for your city or your municipality, the lower the infrastructure cost in going with hydrogen fuel cells than, than with batteries. So the big push, in California, It's actually a mandate. So that's kind of, you know, you look at what I call the, the the stick in the carrot. So the stick is kind of poking you and making you move forward in a certain direction. The carrot is incentivizing you. So we look to other countries within the EU and, and within Europe and other parts of the world where there may be more subsidies and incentives than real regulation, but I think the regulation um, is coming. It's, it's on the cusp and that will really accelerate, certainly accelerate things in mobility.
1: So, in terms of, you know, we covered there who may be leading at the moment. Uh, do you think there's anyone that should be naturally leading due to their inherent resources or uh, dynamics in the market?
2: Well, I, I would love to see more coming out of our, our um, home country for now. Norway has a, a very large amount of renewable energy. Sometimes we forget that hydropower in most cases is considered a, obviously a green power. There are no carbon emissions. So I mean that, that's one area that is, is our you know in our, in our backyard that I, I would love to see a lot more um, happening there. We see strong activities and efforts and hydrogen policies being put in place in places like Australia, New Zealand, and, and again, a lot of activity, a lot of activities in, in a lot of the uh, European Union countries as well. And the UK has been quite impressive with their their activities. China are are, are very focused in, in their hydrogen goals. They they uh, have kind of five-year plans, so they update and or revise their their kind of core central government approach and, and game plans. And hydrogen is very, very big on their list. I, I would say there are not too many pl- countries that aren't somehow looking at it, whether it's to be a, an exporter potentially uh, of hydrogen, where they a country that has very amazing both wind and solar profiles and can make very cheap renewable energy. Places in the, in the Middle East are good examples. Australia is another one, Chile is a big one. So there are certain parts of the world that are literally looking more so to generate green hydrogen, to be a, a, an exporter, more so than a local consumer.
0: Taking a different vein now, any fun stories or facts about hydrogen you'd like to share with our listeners?
2: Oh, I, I would say more, um, just the last six years has been an amazing, fun ride. Waiting to get to where we, we really jumped over the hurdle of the if-if. The hydrogen economy is coming. As to, we see it coming, and now it brings in a whole set of new, and exciting challenges, and just to see now the way, government, industry, uh, you know, everyone is is coming together, to help to, you know, expedite this process. It, I mean, for me, this this is fun, this is is very exciting, and um, I will say until. I became part of Nell. I did not know what the purple meant, <laughs> so I think it's good for us to communicate that, to continue to communicate that. But it's uh, that was that was interesting for me to learn that when I became part of NEL.
1: And one final question from me, David: um, Do you have any calls to action in hydrogen?
2: I, absolutely, and and they are. You know, again, I, I read a lot of these technical and governmental write-ups and, and quote-unquote experts coming from the energy sector and, and talk about one of our earlier questions as with respect to, you know, maybe electrolysis at this scale isn't ready yet. And my call to action is more of a challenge for those of you that are looking at moving forward with hydrogen as part of your sustainability targets for your, again, for your company, for your country, for your city, whatever the case may be. If you're looking at hydrogen, the time is now, it's it's ready and we're ready to move forward. And I think people will be amazed at what Nell can do at large scale in this area. And so any call to action would be, if you're thinking about it, let's start talking about it because we're ready today.
0: I love that. I think that we could probably talk about this all day with you, David. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Are there any key takeaways that you want our listeners to walk away from this podcast with?
2: Going back to my dog years analogy, if you're someone that's already reached out to Nell and you've talked to us about projects or project opportunities, and maybe it's a year old, Um, you might want to re-engage because so much has changed and it's going to continue to change. Our next step that you'll be seeing coming out of NELM, as we've made dramatic uh, strives and and, and improvements in reducing the cost, the capex, of electrolyzers, you're going to see much more coming now. As I mentioned, the opex or the electricity cost to convert that water into hydrogen and oxygen is the the largest piece, and, and typically as much as 70% or more of the cost of the hydrogen. So as I mentioned earlier, the cost of electricity is coming down, but now what Nela is also looking very closely into from a technology standpoint, what are things that we can do to be more efficient? How can we make more hydrogen with less electricity? So we are at the forefront of that. That combined with the significant capital cost reductions. um, I think you'll find Nell being an amazing partner for your hydrogen needs moving forward.
0: Well, thank you very much, David. And I have to say that I agree with you on that one for sure. You've given us a lot of great stuff to ponder. So thanks so much for joining us today.
2: It was my pleasure. Thank you both.
0: Rob, any last thoughts before we wrap up today?
1: Well, I think we've firmly put any uh, doubt to bed about the different shades of hydrogen with David's help there, and no more red faces here.
0: I can confirm for listeners that you're definitely more purple than red, if that makes sense.
1: I certainly am. Uh, I think my other takeaways would be that first of all, we've heard some cool facts and insights today, but secondly, there was an interesting note in there from David about the next industrial revolution. We so often refer to this as related to digitization and Industry 4.0. And that's been a pet topic of mine for several years now i've spoken about it at several events around the world but when you think about it david is right isn't he the clean energy transition and the hydrogen economy itself is in a sense a whole industrial and societal revolution in its own right and as david said the time is now so that's a pretty cool summary for this episode too
0: it certainly is and it's my kind of revolution thanks rob and thanks again to david As always, I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in to this episode of Purple is the New Green. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to check out our website, nellhydrogen.com forward slash podcasts for more episodes as they're released. And you can also subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to tune in. We're back next week with more hydrogen talk. Until then, thanks for listening.